Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Ronald Vandergeest, the co-founder and chief development officer of Treeway, which is a company based in the Netherlands that focuses on ALS and other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. And in particular, we're going to talk about their unique approach, which starts really with the co-founding story of the company, where they co-founded the company with patients who were affected by ALS. And, and we're going to cover a number of things today, but they've made significant progress on an oral treatment, potential oral treatment for ALS in an area where others thought an, an oral administration actually wouldn't be possible. So Ronald, thank you uh, for taking the time and excited to have you here today. Thanks to be here, Patrick, and thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. I'd love to start with the founding story because I think you're one of the very few companies that really has patients at your DNA at the very core. So I'd love to hear about how it came about and um, a little bit about where you are today. Yeah, glad to tell that, Patrick. Um, yeah, and actually, the story is even more drastic than you just explained, because when we stepped into the company, the company was actually already founded by the patients. So they basically had taken their own initiative to uh, to start a company because they were diagnosed in 2010 and 2011. And they simply, so they, they met each other. Uh, they're both from Rotterdam here in the Netherlands. And they both concluded at their first meeting, their first chat, basically, that they were not going to sit down and they were not going to accept that they were going to die, basically, and, and founded this company together. These were two entrepreneurial guys, one coming from the venture capital industry and the other one from, the, from a, a, comp- a growing company, significantly growing company in the Rotterdam Harbor, uh, where he was one of the management team members. So these were people that knew how to set up companies, how to fund them, et cetera. So special individuals, special characters, because of course this was a unique event that uh, that not, body, not everybody knows how to handle that. Uh, but then after they did that, they basically traveled around the world, especially Bernard, Bernard Muller, who was one of the founders, to see whether there were any companies that were having promising drugs. He read everything there was to read in uh, scientific articles, made himself very quickly familiar with that. And then through one of the biotech companies that were based here in the Netherlands, he was tipped off to talk to us, uh, which is Ines de Greef and myself. And we have a company called 3D Farm Exchange that is basically, you know, the way you could describe this is that we have brought together a group of development experts that cover the key areas of drug development. And there are a couple of those And we thought it was good to bring those people together and make them available to small biotechs and startups. Because often what you see in this biotech and startup arena is that there are insufficient experts. There is an incomplete team. And then if inefficiencies start in the development of that drug. Now, we sometimes have difficulty to explain that to biotech companies, you know, because this is a new model. And when we talk to Bernard and Robert John, they... They understood it right away. So we got together. There was a good click between myself and Ines and and them. And so they said, okay, you'll be the CEO and the CDO of this team. And we support you with whatever we can support you with to get this off the the ground as quickly as possible. And, and, And there we went. And and I we're gonna I think spend most of the time diving into the the ALS story, but I I was intrigued by 
what you mentioned there about many companies getting things wrong at the beginning or not quite right. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those major development areas and, and what are some of the common things that go wrong? Yeah, well, it's actually, you know, what, what we thought of, and that's now 12 years ago when we started the company is that, you know, I come from uh, the big pharma companies. Uh, I started my career at J&J. And you learn a lot when you are in these big pharma companies and they do a lot of things right. Uh, and I think they, you know, if you think about development of products, they do things a little bit more efficient than startup companies because they have everything in place. They have a team in place. They have money. And, you know, if the vibe is good and if the, the setup is good, then you can make tremendous pace. And that is sometimes, although the biotech company, companies have a lot of bright ideas and a lot of creativity to add to that they sometimes have difficulties making it happen and that has to do with the fact that if you're in a startup company you have a high risk profile you have little money and you're not so attractive to you know the best people in in the biotech and in the pharmaceutical world so what we did we first of all looked at you know how are the the, the teams organized what kind of expertises are always in a project team uh, from a big pharma company and we made sure that we basically brought those people on board and made them available to the smaller companies so you have if you talk about how you develop a drug there are basically four disciplines four uh, major disciplines and that is the development of your formulation huh? so everything around the pill the injection or the nasal spray uh, there is preclinical toxicology to test in in in, in preclinical setups whether your drug is safe enough to introduce into humans, then you get to your clinical phase. And your fourth expertise is the whole regulatory environment around that to make sure that everything complies with these highly regulated environments that we work in on a day-to-day -day basis. So those kind of people are in our group. And you know, that's what was picked up by our ALS patients. And they saw, okay, you know, you guys have sort of a, a running engine of developers that can, I, we can plug in a drug and they had some ideas about, about drugs. We'll plug it in and we get going from day one and not after we've hired people and whether we've raised money, it was all there and we got going uh, from day one onwards. That's how we made speed. Yeah, it's it's really helpful and a great framework. So maybe you could talk me through from day one when you first started speaking to the co-founders and the team. What was in place then, and then where are you now, and and what was the journey like along the way? Yeah, that was interesting. When we started, uh, they had already done some research work and had worked with some consultants to scope out what drugs were basically there. And what they picked up on was uh, one, basically one proof of concept study that was executed in Japan, where the drug Aderavone was used in a small set of patients. And what uh, was shown in that article, that was an article from 2006, 2007, what was shown in that article is that not only did they saw indications of a clinical effect of this drug in patients, but they also saw some biomarkers and those were biomarkers in the blood that were predictive of oxidative stress they saw those biomarkers uh, go down so we re evaluated those data and we also concluded that this was highly interesting and so if you see multiple things moving in the right direction that usually tells you that you're on the right track but these were small data uh, they were there were some 
pluses and minuses on the way they had set it up. But we have we saw sufficient promises there uh, that that this could work. The one drawback, though, of the molecule that was introduced into these patients was that that it was dosed via an IV dosing. Yeah? So the patient, this was a, a fast drug that was eliminated in the body quickly. So they had to put these patients on an infusion of an hour or of half an hour to make sure that sufficient amount of drug came into the body. And then, so the rest of the day you were done. But you had to repeat that every day because the drug needs to be there on a continuous basis. Now, you can imagine that if you're an ALS patient, you have a chronic disease uh, and you need to go on an infusion every day. Uh, you have to go to the hospital if you need to bring somebody in to make that happen. That is, is not an easy task and is, high, is a high burden. So usually IV dosing is not suitable for chronic diseases. That's what all the experts say. Uh, and it's true because uh, of the burden. And so we immediately knew that we needed to develop an alternative to that. And of course, the most preferred route of administering a drug is through oral delivery because you can swallow a tablet or, or, or something else. And that's the easiest way to do daily dosing. So we talked to a couple of experts. We talked to companies that had tried this before and everybody basically discouraged us and said, well, we've tried this, but it cannot be done. So don't bother. And the mantra to ALS patients has always been, if somebody tells you that it's not possible, then it becomes interesting. Yeah. So we were inspired, of course, by them. And we are basically inspired by that same mantra ourselves. So we said, we're going to try anyways. Eh? And so we, we have a couple of very smart formulation experts here in the group. And I worked on it myself as well, because I have a little bit of background in formulation work as well. So we started trying with all kinds of approaches, trying to be first time right, because you can do things in a lot of different ways. So we tried to be smart about the way that we developed our oral formulation. And, and to make a long short story short, we made it happen. We had a pilot formulation that we thought was already good enough and took it to the outside world. And there were some drawbacks on that formulation that we knew, but we, we thought about the high patient need and tried to introduce that you know, faster than anybody else had already done it. But basically, we got whistled back by investors and by, uh, by, 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 by the market. And so we went in. We did not get discouraged. Well, we got discouraged a little bit, but we, we went in again and came up with a significant improvement on the formulation that we had. So, you know, it's it's going back and forth. You know, you have upsides and you have downsides, but you keep going. And we finally found a formulation that really complied with all the needs of, of a marketing formulation up to the highest standards uh, that we uh, that we wanted to apply. Just wanted to emphasize that that was done with, with a small group of people that we have here. Uh, and that was, of course, a real excitement. We're really proud of that. And, and it just tells you that, you know, it's not sometimes sheer quantity of people or sheer budget that, that make good things happen. But it's, you know, it's about smart design, continuous effort and, and, and keep on going until you get a good result. So, you know, we've been pushing hard we've yeah it's been a long journey but uh, but we finally got there and um since you and i met a few months ago there have been big changes in the industry as well with relieverio getting 
approval from the FDA. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the current state of the art in ALS and, and a little bit about the disease itself for those who aren't familiar and then what the opportunity looks like. Where do we, where do we go from here? And, and uh, what are you guys thinking about your contribution there? Yeah, it's 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 extremely exciting. I think also for patients these days that uh, that these developments are going on and that new drugs are are being developed. It never goes fast enough, of course, if you consider the patients, because ultimately it becomes interesting to patients when they are when the drug is available. And there is a little bit of a difference between you know what is available in in Europe and what is available in the U.S. In Europe, basically nothing is there yet. Uh, because they are, you know, the EMA has been very, let's say, critical on, on the body of evidence that is being produced for, for these drugs, whereas FDA has taken a little bit of a different approach in the past, uh, more pragmatic, basically saying, okay, this drug could work. We're not quite fully convinced about the full efficacy, but let's put it out there anyways, because we have such a high need from patients. So there's different approaches that has led to different, let's say, availabilities of drugs in these countries. But we're working hard now. We have partnered our program, our phase three program with Ferrer, which is a Spanish company, to at least make sure that this drug also becomes available in, in, in Europe. We're making, together with them, fast progress on the recruitment. And uh, then, of course, we have done this study in such a way that we after the last patient is recruited, then we need to follow them for a year to make sure that we can uh, fully evaluate whether there's a clinical improvement because this is, this is uh, as we know, a slow process. This is chronic disease. So you need to evaluate that for a sufficient amount of time. That was one of the critical points from EMA in the past where other companies had only assessed that for shorter periods of time. And so we, needed to, we need to make sure that that is being done according to the proper requirements that EMA sets for this. So that's going on uh, at the moment. It's very exciting. The study is, is, is still continuing. Obviously, everything is still under confidentiality and all the data are still blinded as they should be at this stage, uh, but things are looking good. And then there's new developments, of course, in the field uh, that that are really exciting as well. So I think with the approvals now that are coming through that there's more hope for patients and uh, on different mechanisms of actions. Uh, So what Ederavone is doing, Ederavone is a radical scavenger. So what that basically means, it is a compound that cleans up the garbage that is being caused by neurodegeneration. So the tissues of the neurons disintegrate and that causes what we call reactive oxygen being released by these deteriorating tissues. And if that is left out there, then you basically accelerate the breakdown of your neurons. So you need to clean that up in order for the disease to to be slowed down. And that is what this molecule does. And and that is what has been also shown in studies, that it does not improve the disease, but it allows the disease to, to slow down in its progress and and that's how it usually goes eh? but it tells you that it is you know it's a it's not a symptom there's a couple of symptomatic treatments also out there that are being moved forward but different from that ederavone is really disease modifying in the way that it tries to present prevent the disease really at its core to proceed faster and to proceed fast as it as it does by itself so we're trying to slow that down so so that's that's really 
uh, exciting, I think. Now, that mechanism that you describe to me suggests that the earlier you could treat, potentially the better, right? If you could stop really early in symptom onset or even prior to symptom onset. But I know a, a challenge that you all have is early identification. There aren't great biomarkers and it's a rare disease. How do you think about that and the, the opportunity there versus the challenges it presents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 there are two elements to that. Uh, first of all, um, there has been also in recent years made, been made really progress on identifying potential genetic markers uh, that cause the disease. So if you have patients that carry that uh, genetic marker, then you could say to that specific group of people, well, we're going to start treating you prophylactically uh, before the disease starts because you're at higher risk. But the unfortunate fact in, in well, yeah, it's an unfortunate fact in ALS is that that's only a small portion of patients that has those uh, genetic factors. For the majority of patients, we basically don't know what is causing the disease. And there's little to go on, if little other things to go on, if anything, to determine that you are at risk as a patient. So in that group, um, you have a more difficult task. Now, what we do in our late-stage ALS trial is that we indeed specify that patients should be early diagnosed, uh, so that they are not that the disease is not deteriorating or preventing the, the the product to act, and to make sure in that trial that we have the highest chance uh, of success in that patient population. So, if you theorize about it, you you would indeed say that it is likely that patients that are more progressed are you know would benefit less from the drug but that remains to be proven it may well be that we are surprised by the potency of the compound and test it also in those later stage patients and see that the drug works but of course that needs to be determined you know we first need to make sure that that there is at least a significant portions of patients that 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 benefit from that and then, of course, if we approve that, then we are at least sure that all the patients that are early diagnosed, that they can go immediately on the drug to, to make sure that they are on treatment. Um, what has happened in the U.S. is that FDA has said, well, you know, guys, this is, this is so great that you've done this for ALS patients. Despite the fact that you have only included early diagnosed patients in your trial, we are going to give you the disease indication for the entire population because, you know, we, we do not want to withhold this from patients that may benefit also from it. And I think it's also, it was a, let's say, a, also an encouragement of the company that was, you know, brave enough to, uh, uh, to do this in, this in this patient group. How do you think about the trial design? Your, your framework of the four pieces of this extra is really helpful for me at the beginning. So you've got the, the formulation, you've got the um, preclinical toxicology, and then in the, the third bucket, the development. We know that in any disease, but especially in rapidly progressing diseases, no one has any interest in putting patients on a placebo. And you know this, there are all kinds of interesting trial designs that I mean, you don't necessarily have to. I'm curious about the designs that you've looked at or taken and, and how do you balance the you know, statistical rigor that you need to establish what works versus the, the real ethical realities of, of not wanting to deny anybody a potentially transformative treatment. Yeah, yeah. We've, I mean, in terms of clinical trial designs, we are living in an exciting time eh? because there is a lot going on. People are trying a lot of new type of setups, 
uh, in all kinds of trials. You have these days, you have umbrella trials, you have platform trials where they even merge multiple diseases into one trial or multiple drugs for one disease into one trial. And then all kinds of adaptive designs where as you go along, um, you are able to adapt the trial to basically the interim outcomes that you that you get. So we are following that closely. That type of thinking had not progressed that far at the time that we started the study to really incorporate that. So in, in that sense, I think the trial that is ongoing now in ALS is more a classical design where you have a placebo group versus an active group. We have randomized that uh, two to one so that there's a higher chance that you get on the active group than on the placebo group. And uh, you have to realize at the same time that with all these tricks that you put in place in a trial, you usually pay a price in terms of uh, statistics. So you either have to include more patients or you have to prolong the duration of your trial to, to maintain the amount of power that we call that you get out of a trial. So the power sort of determines how much chances of success that you have in a trial. And if you start to change those parameters, the power changes and you need to correct for that to bring it back to your proper power that, that is required also from a regulatory point of view. So in that sense, I think it was not so bad that we had that trial, obviously, in, in the way that we designed it, obviously, because, you know, you retain a lot of rigor in your trial. And you know, if the outcome of the trial is right, then, then, then you're done, especially for an orphan indication. Huh? For a normal indication, you need to have two pivotal trials, but for an orphan indication, you are done with one trial. Now, so with that, you better make sure that you do that one trial uh, properly because you get only one chance. And if you fail, even if you fail because you find out that you, ha that you have some design errors, you usually do not get a second chance to make it happen again because you know trials are very expensive, as we all know. Uh, so, so you need to be right the first time. And I think we, uh, we made sure that we, that we did that. Of course, there's always a chance that you have what we call a type one or a type two error so that the drug actually works, but you, the, the trial gives something else because it's always a matter of chance and distribution of chances. But I think with the trial design that we have, we, we tried everything we can to make it as rigorous as possible. Yeah. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how you measure, because uh, another factor in this is is the endpoint and every disease has, a, you know, you work across a number of different diseases and in neurodegeneration in particular, there's a lack of good indicative biomarkers and the things that you're measuring take a very long time in both Alzheimer's and ALS. And ALS is, is a progressive disease that can be very fast in some cases, but not in in others, so maybe you, can you talk a little bit about what you're measuring and and if you if you had a wish list of um, of what you could be measuring and for some of the biomarker people to be thinking about where what what would the better ideal be? Yeah, yeah. So in ALS, the uh, one of the classical responses that you look at is the so-called ALS FRS score, which is a clinical score that uh, totals up to uh, uh, fifty points, and those fifty points are based on clinical questions uh, to the patients or to the uh, to the caregiver and you rate them with uh, with numbers and if you see uh, a faster decline in that or if you see a, a less faster decline so a slower decline in those uh, scores then uh, you quantify that and there's various ways to quantify that 
in terms of biomarkers, you still see that that is fully in development. Of course, biomarkers, you know, you have to realize that if drug have if drugs have different mechanism of actions, uh, they start to hit other buttons in the, in the, in the body that react uh, so if you have a radical scavenger like we have you need to look at other parameters when you have then when you have a drug that works on another mechanism of action so since this was such a unique drug those biomarkers needed to be developed so we have included a couple of them in the trial our main endpoint will be on those clinical scores but we take the biomarkers along to see if they follow the same path as the the major clinical scores, so to speak. So we are investigating that as we go along in this phase three trial. And those the biomarkers that we elected are all looking primarily at the oxidative stress pathway, but we take along even a couple of other ones to uh, to see whether we can hit more buttons than uh, than the most likely ones. I um I know we're running up against time here. I got I got a couple more questions just because I think this we can go so deep on this topic. The role of genetics in ALS you touched on <laughs> earlier. Uh, about ten to fifteen percent of patients have a known genetic factor: SOD one, FUS, C nine, or seven two. There's a growing list of more common and rarer ones. But as you mentioned before, the vast majority of patients appear to be sporadic and with no clear genetic cause, but the the genetic drivers can vary pretty dramatically in progression rate from very fast to very slow progressors. And I've got to imagine that this is something you think about as well in trial design, um, both prospectively, you don't want to just by chance end up with a a fast progressor in your um, treatment arm and slow progressors in your placebo arm, which would throw off the results. And and equally, I think after you run the trial, you may think about uh, retrospectively going in and, and getting an understanding of are there certain patient groups, whether by genetics or otherwise, that respond differently. How how do you think about that? And also, what are the regulators asking you for there? Are they are they making any requirements or or just recommendations at this point of how to think about genetics? Yeah. Yeah, we we uh, this goes into the technicalities of how you design a smart trial, eh? and 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 we've worked long and hard about uh, thought about this, and also interacted with regulators, of course, a lot after we had sort of completed our thought process. And one of the things that you need to realize that if you have ALS is a very heterogeneous disease, and even within the group that is non-genetic, so the sporadic group, if you take that group by itself, you see a, a huge difference in deterioration rate of the disease. And if you look at this from, just from a dis- statistical manner, and we've done that in the past with various working groups, then you can even differentiate different groups that decline in a different with a different speed, so to speak. And the reasons why those groups uh, decline in it at a different rate is not yet clear, but you can define them from a statistical analysis point of view. Now, the fastest progressors in the disease are the ones that have a genetic mutation. That's pretty clear. And especially uh, the patients that are unfortunate to have a SOT1 mutation 
is it is known that they progress very fast. But there has been some recent very promising developments for this specific group in of patients where they are treated with a genetic uh, approach uh, where the specific mutation is being targeted with a drug and there's in the genetic area there's lots going on with oligonucleotide antisense technologies etc so they're specifically targeting that and apparently some really good uh, results has been obtained there so that's hope but that's hope for only two percent of the total popu- population because those are the ones that have the sort one mutation but but there's really good hopes for that group currently and there are some companies brave enough that they even take such a small patient group and help them huh? so commercially this is of course for companies not the the most attractive one and the pharma companies get criticized uh, often that they only go for the commercially interesting indications yes. but here you have an example of a company and there are many companies that are brave enough to do these things but they are not so PR wise, this is not an attractive thing to target, but you know, these positive things are also there. These positive companies that go for the indication, even though it is small, if they're able to make this difference, they go for it, right? So that that's a really good uh, that's a really good thing that is happening. And I see that happen all over the place uh, in the field. So so it's it's a good news for a lot of rare diseases, I should say, that there's companies going after that. In terms of smart trial design, there's another aspect that we considered when we designed this trial is that if you have patients in your trial, even if they're diagnosed relatively early, you have these patients that are fast progressors and are slow progressors in that heterogeneous population. Now, if you take patients that progress relatively slowly, you'd say, oh, that's good news for the patient, but that's actually bad news for the trial because if they progress only slowly, and they would have a change of that progression by have, by a drug that would counter that, there's only a very small difference there that you're able to measure. Yeah. So you you can, if the line is if the line goes like this, it has a lot of room to go up. But if the yes. line is already almost flat, then there's no room room on the top side to improve. Right. And that is difficult to measure. So that's an important aspect. The other aspect is that if you have a patient that goes like this. It, he will, he or she will probably have a very severe disease, and a, a drug will have a hard time to counter that because right. the disease mechanism is so deteriorating. And so, you need to be in that middle group for your drug to give it a chance to work. And then, once you've proven that, then you can, of course, expand to all the layers of the of the disease and, and provide it to all the patients and and see how it works there. But for your initial trial, it is important, you know to give your drug the optimal chance of success and make it happen. Yeah, and that is what we did by, by, by thinking through all these, these, uh, these mechanisms and all these aspects of a clinical trial that can make or break it, basically. Yes. Just in, in the last couple of minutes here, uh, uh, maybe a broad one, but we've got a couple hundred diseases really that have good treatments. And then we've got 6,000 plus that don't. Um, so as an industry, we face, call it a challenge or an opportunity, but we know only a handful of new drugs get approved every year. And I want to get your thoughts on where across those four buckets that you described at the beginning, where are the greatest opportunities to increase the throughput? If if we wanted to live in a world where we were approving 100 new drugs, a thousand new drugs, because we sort of do need to get to the point where we're in, in the three digits, uh, 
if we're going to make progress on every disease in our lifetime. So where are the, where are the biggest opportunities that you see for us to not necessarily increase the speed? We've spoken about this before. It's not speed is part of it, right? If you can get a drug through in five years instead of 10, that's great. But it's also just about volume, right? If it takes 10 years, but we can be pushing more things through successfully, that, that gets us there as well. Yeah, so so there's still plenty of job opportunities for life science professionals, I would say, for, for many years to come. Uh, and also for us, uh, because we want to tackle all these diseases, uh, also the smaller diseases, uh, as, I, as I mentioned. What is interesting, though, is what you, uh, what you mentioned about the success of, of, of drug development. And there are some studies that have been done uh, throughout the years where they've looked at uh, what successes of uh, drugs are really based on. And there have been a couple of good uh, analyses. And what, what, what always strikes me in, this, in these types of analysis is that there is a sort of consistent ratio of where uh, effect or where, where success of a, a drug development is, is based on. And if you divide it out in the main parameters, two of the main parameters are the drug uh, itself, how good is that? And another parameter is uh, is the people and the group and the way that you structure the organization to make that happen. And the striking thing and the consistent thing about these analyses is that the ratio is, is 30-70. So 30% is the drug and 70% is the people that are, and the team that does it and the way that is organized. And what you see is that so that's a striking number, right? Because we're all focused on getting new drugs and the right, right drugs. But, but equally so, and maybe even more so, you have to make sure that you put all the proper measures and the organization in the right way in place to make it a success. And it just tells you that a lot of wrong decisions can be made because success and failure determine that 70% rate. And so that's the challenge. I think to me, that's the main challenge. That's the way also how we try to organize our teams. We give a lot of ownership to the teams that develop these drugs. You know, they really need to feel that what they are developing is, is their baby and, and they are determining, you know, they are in a, in a very important position for patients, basically, basically uh, and in, in ALS, especially, uh, which is such a severe disease, that we put them in their strength, but also the responsibility make it happen and make it happen in a creative way. Uh, and if we provide ownership and, of course, sufficient funding to these teams, that is a key driver for success. So I think that is not something that everybody aware is of, but that is what we try to do with our team. And that is also what we preach to the world to say, okay, guys, make sure that you have the best possible people doing that the entrepreneurial guys uh, and girls, because this is a creative process. You can take many wrong turns, basically, yes. and then you destroy a, a potentially very good drug. So make sure that you have that right. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's such important work. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk through the important work you're doing. And thanks, everyone, for taking the time to listen. If people want to follow your progress, it's treeway.nl. Is that right? Anywhere else that you want people to visit? Yep, that's right. Great. Um, well, thank you. And, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you liked the episode, uh, we'd appreciate if you shared it one to one with a friend or colleague or go on and leave us a review. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time.